Travellers and welcome to Podcast 46 in our ever-increasing series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder, and our subject today is Fit for Travel. I think it's fair to say that health and travel have never been so unhealthily entwined as during the coronavirus pandemic, but while the wretched virus has concentrated billions of minds, of course, travellers shouldn't lose sight of the many other medical risks that jeopardise our journeys. Well, I must say that as a fully paid up member of the Hypochondriac Travellers <laughs> Club, I am delighted that our guest today is Sasha Heaney, who I believe is normally to be found guiding travellers around some of the least safe places in the world. Um, and since extricating your tour group from Yemen in March, you've been working in the NHS as a nurse. Is that true, Sasha? Hi, Simon. Hi, Mick. Yes, I'm back to my full-time day job now. Um, yeah, so I'm a psychiatric nurse uh, down in Brighton where I live. And for you uh, personally, how devastating has lockdown and, and the loss of travel been for you oh it's been totally devastating to be honest um you know i had quite a few trips planned this year and all of them got cancelled uh yeah it's just it's just sad for everyone who enjoys traveling really but personally yeah it's been awful you know i mean yeah i'm very lucky obviously we live in the uk and it's a beautiful country but yeah we, when you enjoy traveling as much as we all do it's just hard well there is a light however flickery it might be at the end of the tunnel so i presume um, sasha that you are looking forward like um, well most of us are to the vaccine yeah very much i mean it's it's all a step in the right direction isn't it i mean there's still huge question marks hang, hanging over the vaccine but if it gets us moving quicker then yeah it can only be a good thing in my eyes definitely how are things going to pan out in your experience? Um, are we all going to be told, right, you can either go to country X if you have a certificate of vaccination, as you do, of course, you need with many other things, you know, yellow fever, for example, or you can go in if you've been tested. Is that how it's going to be for a while? I think it will have to be, you know, the travel industry is on its knees already. And I think the only way to move forward and try and pick things up is that if that's what they're going to do is to get people tested before they leave the country. You know, many countries are doing that at the moment where you can get tested at airports. And, you know, as long as you get a, a positive, um, a, well, a negative a COVID test, you can then enter the country that you're destined to go to. So I think that has to be the way we move forward because, you know, COVID isn't going anywhere fast, even with the vaccine it's still going to be around for a long time. So we just need to find out a way that we can work with it. Uh, on the subject of testing, I've actually been having a bit of a quasi-medical week myself because on Tuesday, I went to Heathrow at um, silly o'clock in the morning to meet the passengers coming in from New York aboard United Flight 14. This was a sort of historic trip in which everyone had been tested before departure. One of the 37 passengers booked on board tested positive. They stayed behind, but it wasn't. The uh, business editor at large for CNN, Richard Quest, he was allowed on. He was also first off the plane, and I grabbed him for a quick word afterwards. Um, Richard Quest, uh, business presenter for CNN. What was the flight like? 
The flight itself was pretty much like any transatlantic flight at the moment. There weren't many passengers, just a, couple, a few dozen. Uh, the meal service was abridged, but you still do get a hot meal. And you have to wear a mask for the whole flight. So I've been wearing this mask now for, what, eight, nine hours uh, continuously. What I think is fascinating is, of course, that everybody on board had tested negative for COVID. And this, there was one passenger, by the way, um, a, a prospective passenger, who at Newark did test positive before, for, for, for COVID. So they were obviously looked after, but they weren't able to travel. And I think that's what United says proves the point the significance of pre departure testing. Simon, you know well enough as I do. Quarantines are a killer for the industry. Therefore, what United is basically saying is, try this. It's the way forward. That's Richard Quest of CNN. Now, many other risks besides coronavirus are available. And Sasha, you go to some pretty strange places. In terms of the destinations that you uh, guide people to. Um, there's really no shortage of dangers, but from a purely medical point of view, which um, three countries that you visited would present the biggest dangers in terms of travel health? Um, you know, the world's facing so many different health challenges. It comes in so many different forms, really. But I don't know, like I was back in Sierra Leone back in 2013 when Ebola hit. Ooh. Oh, blah. So, yeah, so we had to make a, yeah, a quick exit. And yeah, I mean, change all our plans really on that. And then, you know, you kind of, you look at places that still like, you know, the dengue fever when you go to India and Bangladesh. And, you know, when you think about health concerns, you think about diseases and all things like that when you travel. But then there's things like air pollution, you know, which is one of the greatest environmental health risks in the world. And you think about some of the countries we visit. And the exposure we have to these sorts of things as well. Again, in countries like in you know India, China, all those sorts of places that we don't really think that they are health risks, but they really are. Do, do you find yourself having to look after members of your tour groups when they are um, stricken by something like uh, well, I, I suppose you know asthma or breathing problems anyway as a result of this? Yes, yeah, sometimes. Um, I mean, respiratory problems is quite a big, you know, issue. And that's where people really need to be accountable of when they choose what they're taking away with them is to make sure they always have their prescribed medications, especially things like inhalers and stuff. Um, I mean, I've been on trips where we've had people with malaria and we've had to like call doctors in because some people don't actually take anti-malarials, although they're advised to. Malaria um, is a pretty horrible disease. Obviously, it causes huge amounts of um, uh, damage and destruction and despair and misery and everything else in many parts of the world, particularly in Africa. Uh, and it must be quite a hazard for you. But do you just um, what, what, what's your top tip not to be bitten or to be absolutely scrupulous of taking anti-malarials? Oh, always take anti-malarials. I don't know why people would take the chance not to, to be honest. And I, I always get so surprised how many people don't. And I can't, you know, I ask them why. And is it the side effects or they just feel like they don't need to? But, you know, we're lucky we have these anti-malarials so accessible. We can buy them over the counter. So I would definitely advise to take things like that, you know, as well as using your sprays and your nets. And uh, I'm Mick, uh, malaria is particular bet noir of yours isn't it 
Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I have what I would consider to be a healthy dread of malaria um, and particularly the drug resistant strains. And uh, I became aware of them in Zimbabwe where I went in the early 1990s. I was working on an environmental report and uh, had to go out a lot into the countryside and um, stay in uh, uh, tents. And, and uh, I remember just after I'd arrived, I met a rugged national park ranger who told me that he'd recently had malaria and that he'd spent three days scared that he died then another three days wishing that he would <laughs> and, and I, I've got to say that um, I, I was um, considerably concerned by this and he also told me that the uh, Anopheles mosquito which is the one that spreads the malaria parasite can be distinguished from harmless mosquitoes by the resting position of their bodies um, the, 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 yeah the um, so the, the bodies of a nasty mosquito um, point upwards at 45 degrees to the surface that they're on. And if you look at a whole bunch of mosquitoes, quite a lot of them are par sitting parallel to the surface. So for the next few months, every time I had a shower, I spent ages studying all the mosquitoes to see how many of the nasty ones there were and trying to squash them. And, uh, and also wearing ludicrous amounts of clothing, even though it was extremely hot at night, to um, avoid being bitten. A couple of points, if I may. The first one, Mick, is that I don't think there is such a thing as a harmless mosquito. And if you're close enough to a mosquito to see its posture, you're too close. Get out. Well, they're quite quiet during the day. If you get up late and have your shower while they're still um, slumbering, uh, they, they're, they're, they're not um, particularly active. And uh, you can, you can, you, you can scrutinise them with some care from quite close to without a lot of danger. Um, I think we do need to say to our lovely listeners, um, if you possibly can, don't try this at home. Um, uh, so, so, Sasha, um, what mistakes would you say that um, travellers make when they're preparing for a trip or indeed failing to prepare? Um, I'm thinking of when you sort of turn up at the airport and meet, meet your, your, your charges and you think, oh my goodness, um, what's happened here? Yeah, insurance. I think people don't take out the right insurance for where they're going. That's, uh, that's quite a big one um, because some of, some of the places, especially we go to, um, you need specific insurance companies to be covered. Um, I think as well, a lot of people underestimate uh, what they're going to find when they go to these countries. You know, they're underdeveloped. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's just being presumptuous Westerners like we are. We think it might be a little bit more developed and the healthcare system might be better than it is. And I think people get there and are quite surprised that, yeah, it's not what they expected, maybe. Oh dear. Um, so, so yes, always, always um, prepare. Um, we've, we've got a friend called Hugh O'Shaughnessy um, and um, he, uh, he's a fine, fine giant journalist uh, and I know Mick's worked very closely with him and his motto is never eat anything that's green. Does that have any medical virtue at all as far as you can see? Uh, no, well I'm vegetarian so I eat everything that's green so... <laughs> 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 I think he yes I think he meant uh, don't trust a, a salad um we were um uh, traveling in uh, some quite rural parts of uh, central america um when he came up with that and uh, it, 
I actually um, really like my salad. And after a bit, I cracked and I did eat a tomato salad. Well, certainly a, t a salad with a tomato in it at Belize Airport. And uh, I was ill for, well, on and off for weeks as a result of that. And he didn't touch um, a, a leaf of lettuce or a tiny bit of anything you could call healthy the whole time we were traveling and um he was absolutely fine <laughs> i think you've got to be careful of just what things are washed in i mean i do tend to sort of you know if you can't get bottled water just carry kind of water purification tablets and just try and clean some water because sometimes you just can't get any sort of decent fresh food anyway so when you do find it you kind of want to hang on to it I think that um, maybe um, the uh, regime that Simon and I followed when we were on uh, a couple of um, quite interesting expeditions is quite a good one. I think all we ate was um, canned tuna, wasn't it, uh, Simon? I... Uh, uh, yeah, that, that sounds um, exactly right, apart from one, one uh, difficult night where we turned up at a village and they, they offered us chicken, which effectively meant killing the... The, the, the oldest, um, most <laughs> decrepit hen in the village and serving it to us, which um, I, I, at which point I was most definitely wish I'd been a vegetarian. Um, looking more widely at, um, at the, the whole picture of, of uh, travel, um, I mean, it can do things not just to your, to your body, and I've got the scars to prove it, um, but it can also mess with your mind. I mean, how do people look after their mental well-being while on the road? You know what, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, I'm a psychiatric nurse, actually, so it's of you know, particular interest to me because, you know, as enjoyable as travel is, it can be stressful, you know, for lots of reasons, really, just separation from home and dealing with foreign cultures and languages, you know, just basic change, actually. So people maybe underestimate the impact that can have on them. So I think it's really important to have just a couple of, you know, contingency plans for when you are away, you know, have make sure you have some sort of contact if you can with home if you need if you feel you need to um have good distraction techniques have if you do actually predispose to any sort of mental illness maybe make sure you have a letter with you stating that in different languages i know someone that did that and it was actually really helpful because it helped to explain while they were traveling um and just, you know, just remember that you don't have to keep on moving. If you feel stressed or anxious, just stop, regroup, think about things and just take your time, you know, because, yeah, I think, you know, people do underestimate the stress that can come at travelling. And I think especially at the moment. Thank That's you. a good point, actually. I, I, yeah, I think the thing, the idea of actually you don't necessarily have to keep going. It's quite easy, isn't it, to get into a kind of... Uh, uh, a, a sort of ritual uh, habit of uh, oh it's another day gotta go to another place and uh, yeah that sometimes is uh, not a great idea um, I, I wanted to ask you Sasha is there anywhere that from a medical perspective or health perspective that you wouldn't go uh no <laughs> not really <laughs> uh may I don't know maybe America <laughs> no, but um no why, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you go there <laughs> I think it's Wow, I, I think I'd rather go to Africa than America now. I think Africa's much safer, personally. Oh, you mean yeah. from a COVID point of view or from, <laughs> from how much it might cost you if you got ill? Or Yeah, but no, I, I mean, on the whole, there's nowhere that I can think of that would put me off going to. 
Okay, on, on the subject of Africa, I do need to um, to, to make a uh, get on my high horse, if you can bear with me. Um, this is something I've been saying for months and months and months. Um, the UK has a couple of um, interesting views about uh, coronavirus. First one is that pre-testing is a complete waste of time. And the second one is, and this has been the, the position ever since the uh, 17th of um, March, so we've just done eight, eight months of this, that Africa is far too dangerous for British people to go to because of the high level of coronavirus infections. Unacceptably high risk, it says. And just before we um, started recording, I went and had a look. Um, yeah, the UK's uh, rate of new infections is 12 and a half times higher than South Africa, 19 times higher than Kenya, 168 times higher than Egypt, and 450 times higher than the Gambia. But the Foreign Office keeps saying unacceptably high risk, you're very likely to come to grief. Does that convince you, Sasha, that the uh, government tells us this? No, not at all. It just seems from the start of all this, they've been so anti-Africa and the figures have never shown it, like you said. And even sort of, they can't back it up with much evidence either because I mean, to be honest, Africa were really quick off the mark with responding to COVID. You know, they showed adherence, public support quickly. Um, you know, you've got to remember as well, their population, are, you know, they're young. They haven't had, heart, you know, as many fatalities as we have. They're, they don't have as many care homes. Their older people are in, in rural areas. You know, there's so many reasons why they might be on top of this. Could be because of their favourable climate. Um, like even I was reading something quite interesting actually that I didn't think about but although their hospital systems aren't as good what Africa do have is um, a good community health systems which kind of came off the back of Ebola so you know once Covid hit they kind of just redirected that to to this you know pandemic so they've been really proactive with dealing with this and I think as a result you know the the stats show it. Do you, do you think that there's a bit of a colonial attitude here, which is basically just not trusting their figures? Um, I kind of suspect that might be the case, you know, rather than, and that's why you can't get any, uh, um, any evidence out of the government because they just fundamentally don't believe the numbers from Africa, um, probably for not good reasons. But um, can I just ask something, which is that uh, I, I would agree that pre-testing isn't any use um, as long as the tests take as long to, to get back as they tend to do at the moment over here. Presumably, the test that Richard Quest was talking about on Fl United Flight 14 were instant turnaround ones or 10-minute ones. Is that right, Simon? And that's exactly right. Let me tell you exactly what's happening. So they are so-called LAMP tests and um, Sasha might want to explain the uh, what, what's happening on a molecular level but basically they're not as accurate as the PCR tests that the NHS uses but they're, they're still you know, reasonably good and the idea is that you get on the plane everybody's been tested I was going to say you know that nobody is carrying coronavirus obviously you cannot say that but you, you just this fact that uh, what three uh, percent of the population of the plane i.e one person was turned away is is possibly good news so okay one, one more health aspect before we get on to our our um our travel questionnaire if we may Sasha and that is 
altitude sickness. Do you get it? And is it as bad as Mick seems to find? <laughs> you know what? I got it once and it's horrendous, <laughs> I have to say. I got it um, on the train line from Beijing to Lhasa in Tibet. Ooh, <laughs> how is that? Gosh. Oh, it's great, yeah. The Qinghai Railway, yeah. I mean, it's amazing, but you're, so it's two days and they're supposed to give you extra oxygen and there's pumps there, but I don't think they were quite working. So by the, oh. Time, oh, by the time I got to Lhasa, I had to go straight to hospital, actually. Really? Yeah. But how high are you? I mean, the thing is, you, it, you just feel so unwell, but it's so easily rectified. Once you get a bit of oxygen and some headache tablets, you're fine. You know, but yeah, once you're in it, it's not good. Oh, no. Um, did, you, did you have a chance to, presumably you couldn't really stop, could you? Because no, uh, that's one of the things you're supposed to do, isn't it? If you get to a certain uh, height and you actually start to feel ill. And I've had that headache. It is just unbelievable. It's as though someone has actually um, taken a, uh, uh, an axe and cut your brain in half. That's what my one felt oh, like no. anyway. Yeah, it's just excruciating, isn't it, Mick? And <laughs> you're um, you're right though, because because again, I remember years ago doing base camp Everest, and you go up and you feel pretty rough, but then you come straight back down again, and then you stay, and then you keep moving slowly, and that's how you kind of combat it. But yeah, two days on a train straight across, yeah. Oh gosh, and you went so you went up. You must have gone up thousands of feet, I suppose. I mean, I presume I don't. I don't know it at all. Yeah, I think it's just the speed because it's oh. yeah, it's the highest train ride in the world. But it's just the speed that you yeah. cover it. That's more if, like you say, if it stopped and you could acclimatize, that would have been the key. But yeah. Yeah. Do you know what's even worse, Sasha, is if you're um, if you're clambering up some um, uh, interminable mountain um, with uh, a mild attack of this thing uh, and the person you're with doesn't suffer from it at all. Yeah, that, that makes it about 10 times as bad. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was my friend. <laughs> she didn't hit her at all. I remember. And that was Simon in our case. <laughs> Um, uh, well, I, I, I'm sure it will get me one day, um, and uh, I'll think of you both, and I'll think of the axe through my through my head as well. Well, let's descend to the we should have been there questionnaire. <laughs> Sasha, your most memorable journey? I think probably last year to Papua New Guinea, which was yeah, it's been a dream for me for years. I've never been there. What, what, what what's so wonderful about it? Oh, it's just so, it just feels quite wild still. You know, you kind of feel like there's fewer and fewer places in the world that still have that real rawness. And it really does have that, genuinely does. And it's beautiful. Like, it's just a stunning country as well. I might be a bit of a wuss, but I've heard it's very dangerous. Yeah, I think if you go up in too much into the highlands, we, we kind of stayed, you know, in the, well, no, we went up the Sepik River and stuff. So we, you know... I think, again, it's like that bad press thing, isn't it? It gets probably worse press than it needs to. Take us on to your favourite souvenir, if you would. Oh, I can think, well, it just reminds me, talking about Papua New Guinea, actually. I don't know if it's my favourite. It's definitely my most unusual, but we got given something called a kotika, which is a penis gourd, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah. So it's what, yeah, it's what the locals wear, the tribesmen. And they always wear it. So it faces up, so it's always <laughs> erect, and it's always maybe quite exaggerated in size. <laughs> so, 
Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorites, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you follow that? Well, obviously, with your best meal abroad. Uh, oh, best meal. You know what? I think it's somewhere... Oh, like in Israel, I remember the food again, I suppose for vegetarians, it was just amazing. Oh, it was lovely because it's, it's so vegetarian friendly and it's fresh and, you know, you always eat outside and lots of dishes. Oh, I thought the food was stunning there. And to wash this down, Sasha, what's the weirdest brew you've ever drunk? Oh, um, oh, I think one of the most distasteful things I've had is, uh, warm yak's milk i'm not very good for dairy oh yeah it was it was dreadful (laughs) Uh, where was this yak was it on your train to tibet by any chance it was in tibet actually yeah that's where we had it i know this is very difficult to do but can you describe how it tastes well because i thought it would be sweet so i thought you know that would make it a little bit more palatable but it was bitter and yeah it was and because it was given by a local and people were staying with so you had to do the hospitable thing and you know drink it all and enjoy it and, <laughs> you know. oh no god <laughs> is that where the word yuck comes from do you yeah think? it must do i think <laughs> right next question um what's the most important item in your luggage the the first thing you pack um, obviously apart from your passport and um, and uh, all those medicines i think it's always earplugs I'm always so yeah I'm quite a light sleep I'm really susceptible to noise it's the one thing if I forget I get really annoyed about because I've got specific ones as well so yeah I think them oh Um, and and my Polaroid camera that's the other thing I always pack no they don't make them do they what with the old crikey with with your earplugs and your Polaroid camera have you ever been lost to the point of being scared I get lost all the time not which I don't know it's not the best skill for a tour guide really but um <laughs> I managed to sort of look like I'm not lost <laughs> uh, quite well so I you know what I never get scared because I always think you know you, you can't get that lost that you can't find your way these days so and finally um your most embarrassing travel experience oh gosh um yeah, maybe this wasn't as embarrassing for me as such, but for whoever committed the crime. But I remember um, some years ago, I was I was in Addis in Ethiopia and uh, my bag didn't arrive. So I just sort of stayed in Addis for a couple of days. And then I think about four or five days, my bag, I got a phone call, my bag arrived. So I went to the airport to pick it up and everything looked all right. But then when I got back and unpacked it, all my underwear was missing. <laughs> which is quite an unusual thing. So yeah, that was slightly embarrassing for someone. Oh, crikey, but there's worse places to be kicking around for four or five days than Addis, I would no, say. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely, with or without underwear. <laughs> Steady on. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, look, Sasha, Heaney, thank you so much. And uh, the company that Sasha guides for, and mostly without getting lost, is Lupine Travel. And they've restarted. Bookings currently being taken, I understand, for Afghanistan and Sudan, which is where you're off to soon, isn't it, Sasha? Yeah, this Saturday, actually. Have a wonderful time. Thank you.
Yes, all the best of luck, Sasha, and thank you so much for, um, for joining us on You Should Have Been There. Next week, our subject will be long-distance walks. Uh, until then, from me, Mick Webb. And from me, Simon Calder, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.